Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another special edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and this is our second episode devoted to The Kings, the new Showtime documentary series that looks at the lives and careers of Marvin Hagler, Roberto Duran, Thomas Hearns and Sugar Ray Leonard through the lens of the changes that were taking place in the broader world during the 1980s. Shortly, we'll be joined by Jackie Callum, groundbreaking boxing manager, former publicist for Tommy Hearns and the Crunk Gym, and a prominent figure in the docuseries. But first, a quick rundown of what episode two was all about. The underlying theme of the episode is of fathers and sons, with Tommy Hearns, Marvin Hagler, and Roberto Duran all talking about their father's absence from their lives, and how trainers and managers, Emmanuel Stewart, Goody and Pat Petronelli, and Carlos Eletta and Ray Arcel somewhat assumed those roles for them. As Teddy Atlas notes in his opening voiceover, on the one hand, being a trainer is like being a parent. On the other hand, that parental role requires leading them to a ring where they could be badly hurt. We start in Detroit, as the Motor City, once a model for America, is in deep decline. But it is home to the Kronk Gym, a breeding ground for multiple world champions, including Thomas Hearns. We see Hearns fight for his first world title, knocking out Pepino Cuevas in just two rounds. Detroit rejoices at the rare triumph amid the city's economic hardships. Meanwhile, Ronald Reagan is campaigning for the presidency by targeting welfare recipients and promoting quote-unquote family values. Sugar Ray Leonard is finding there is a downside to fame as he's questioned over a welfare claim that the mother of his son made and criticized for fathering a child out of wedlock. And Roberto Duran discovers how fickle fame can be. The pride of Panama, when he defeats Leonard at the end of episode one, he is pilloried after the no-mas rematch in New Orleans and has to resort to walking with his pet lion to keep people away. <laughs> a marvelous Marvin Hagler, denied victory by the judges in his first world title shot, finally gets what he craves when he goes to London and defeats Alan Minter. But once again, the fates refuse to allow Hagler to bask in his victory as he has to retreat from the ring under a shower of beer bottles thrown by the hostile English crowd. The episode concludes with a third of nine fights between the four kings, the welterweight unification bout between Hearns and Leonard, in which Hearns takes an unexpected lead by boxing the boxer, but Leonard turns it around late and outpunches the puncher to score a 14th round stoppage. So let's get into our half dozen talking points. Uh, Kieran, kick it off with one of the scenes or thoughts that leaped out at you watching episode two. Yeah, one of the things that, that really stands out to me was how much it clearly deeply irritated Ray Leonard that all the other kings and their fans mocked him somewhat as, as a white-collar boxer, to use the phrase that he used, as yeah. someone who had been on Easy Street for his career. It, it was really interesting. I thought the extent to which he was motivated to prove himself as a, quote, real fighter, even at the height of his fame, really shone through, I, I thought. It isn't that he denied that his personality and his Olympic success you know, uh, paved the way to glory. But what clearly grated for him was the assumption beyond that, that he had it easy and the others didn't. And, um, you know, one thought that also occurred to me, because you, you mentioned in the rundown there how there was a lot of focus on the fighters not having parents. And, of course, the one in that list, or not having fathers that were in their lives, and the one who was missing from that list was Ray Leonard. Even here, he's the one who's different, right? Because right. we find out in episode one that he comes from a two-parent family and he turns pro partly, you know, to provide uh, uh, money for medical support for, for his parents. And um, 
yeah, because he was American, he had a great smile and a winning personality, he went to the Olympics, he, he definitely had an easier path to the top than others, but he still had to win the Olympics, he still had to follow that path, he had to earn all of it, and it's interesting, I think it makes the first fight with Duran makes it more sense, you know, and, and a lot of the other things that he did in his career make more sense when you realize that he's constantly trying to prove to others and perhaps to himself that he's a real fighter. Yeah, uh, and I guess we talked about that a, a bit when we were when you were assigned your top five pretty boys list. How uh, right. when you have that sort of image, it's harder to prove to people uh, what what you're made of. And this partially goes back to the end of episode one, the first fight with Duran. But uh, when I interviewed Larry Merchant for my Leonard Hagler oral history, he noted that in the loss to Duran that was when a lot of boxing fans began to take Ray seriously and began to view him as more than just a pretty boy. Um, as, as for the, the white collar fighter observation. Yeah. He, he uses that term. Uh, and the, the documentary says maybe without precisely spelling it out that, Ray was a black man that white America was comfortable with, um, mm. which is great from a money-making perspective, um, but it, it can also have its drawbacks. Um, I certainly recommend watching the first couple of hours of OJ Made in America if you want a deeper exploration of the mm. black athlete embraced by white America. Yeah. Um, okay, so the, the first thing I want to highlight in this episode is a very deliberate cut that Matt Whitecross and his team of editors made from Steve Farhood saying, sports provides heroes for us, Lord knows politics doesn't, right into Reagan saying he's seeking the <laughs> Republican nomination for president. The filmmakers don't hide their political leanings in how they present what they present. Um, I've seen Matt's Twitter. I know he is of the same general mind as you and I are. And even if I hadn't seen his Twitter, I still would have been able to guess his politics from the way Reagan is presented. Um, and by the way, very interesting that the Republican convention in 1980 was at yeah. Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit, uh, a factual touch that helps make the political juxtaposition feel less forced. Um, anyway, I, I have no idea how right-leaning folks might feel about the way the politicians are presented yeah. in the Kings, but I know I don't have a problem with the way they're presented. <laughs> <laughs> no, nor do I. I. I sort of veered away myself from bringing up a Reagan-related comment because you'd done that last week, and I didn't want to just like copy what you what you'd done. But um, but yeah. But what was interesting to me was um, interesting. You know, as you touched on last week, talking about you know hearing Reagan say "Make America Great Again," which we did again in episode yep, two. Yep, we're up to two <laughs> magas. Yep. <laughs> it was interesting to me, like how much. The same hymn book is still being used, right? Poor yeah. people are lazy and are stealing government resources, except for poor rural white folk. They need right. help. Um, <laughs> rich yep. people are paying too much and need tax breaks. And and what's key to this this series, Central America and Central Americans are just bad. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just astonishing how little that's changed. You know, I haven't I haven't sort of come up with a new thing for forty years. But but yeah, to get to your point, it was interesting. I don't know that the narrative for the whole series works at all, right? If you see the Reagan revolution as a glorious phase in our nation's history, which, to be fair, many people still do. Sure. Uh, this is as, as much as a narrative about the struggle of the four men at the the, the heart of it. It's also a, a narrative about struggle more generally, right? Struggle against the man, struggle uh, uh, against imperialism, struggle uh, against uh, 
you know, what economic downturns have done. And I guess right. if you think that the real struggle is against the existence of Social Security or quote unquote welfare queens, <laughs> you're probably going to view the story through a rather different lens. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I liked, and I mentioned this when we were talking to Matt Whitecross a couple of weeks ago, but I love Duran's voiceovers and especially how candid he is, you know, and, and one of the things that really leapt out at me here was I always felt that in the past it's felt that he's come up with some different excuse each time to explain away his loss in New Orleans. But here he appears to be completely honest. He just says, I had to lose too much weight. I wasn't in shape. I had nothing in the ring. I didn't like the way the fight was going. I was getting paid anyway. So he decides to bail and try again another day. And, and I think I might be wrong. Feel free to correct me if I am. I feel like this is the first time he's publicly acknowledged that. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but I do remember that memorable 30 for 30 a few years back that was right. supposed to climax in Leonard meeting Duran and asking what happened. And then Duran just didn't show. Um, <laughs> right. And also related to this, not for the first time, huge congratulations to the archival video team uh, for, for this documentary for uncovering footage that I hadn't seen before of Duran's team in the locker room after the fight mm. telling him, don't say a word, we'll think of something to say. I think that's a bit of a scoop all the way around, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't covering boxing, obviously, in, in 1980, 81, uh, can't recall what you know what might have been out there at the time uh but i hadn't seen that before either and yeah i think everything that he said in this documentary i don't know that any of it was stuff he hasn't said at some point but to sort of put it all together uh the way that this this feels like the most open that he's been yeah. in, in addressing the no mas and um i still think that duran thought he was doing the macho thing by quitting mm -hmm. that, that he was mm -hmm. saying what Leonard is doing in there, that's not boxing. I'm too much of a serious yeah. fighter to be a part of this. I, and and I, I think in the moment, he thought it would be well-received. And, and it turned out he was mm. very wrong about that. But th that's my interpretation of, of the no mas anyway. But then it's, of course, uh, all that other stuff had a, played a big role in it. Had he been in better shape, maybe he's willing to, to keep trying to catch Leonard instead of just right. giving up the way he did. Um, and, and by the way, one other Duran note uh, regarding his weight gain. Um, I loved Ray Arcel comparing the way he eats to the way a dog eats uh, eating yeah. fast because he grew up without much food. And, and yep. now he was just inhaling yep. it all. I found that fascinating. Yep. Agreed. Okay. Uh, my next moment, there's just a brief clip toward the end of the episode of Angelo Dundee and Emmanuel Stewart palling around smiling, being affectionate with mm -hmm. each other as they were being interviewed together. And damn, did I get, both the good and bad feels watching that. Yeah. Um, it's back to what you said last week about the melancholy you felt seeing Emmanuel and Marvin. Um, and even though he lived a longer life, he died at age 90, uh, I felt a little sad seeing Angelo too. Um, mm -hmm. And by the way, I, I can't say this for certain, but I think I conducted the last interview Angelo ever gave. Um, wow. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I interviewed him for that oral history that I already mentioned. He died about four or five months after it published, and when he died, I was under the impression that I had been the last reporter to interview him. Could be wrong, um, wow. but yeah. Um, but he—I just want to say—he was a delight to interview. Yep. Very friendly, very animated, and enthusiastic. That was the only time I ever spoke to him, and I'm uh, really glad I got the chance. Yeah, I, I got to talk to him a couple of times. Uh, Bert Sugar 
you know, co-wrote or basically ghosted his autobiography. Right. And Bert and I were very close. And um, with Bert sort of just saying, and you got to sit down with this guy. And <laughs> sweetheart of a man. Yep. Absolute yep. sweetheart of a man. Um, and yeah, and I did. I, I, I noted that interaction with, with Manny and, and, and him. And the other thing that stuck out to me on the same vein was the camaraderie between Howard Cassell and Ray Arcel after hmm, the, yeah. the New Orleans and, and the way that they talked with each other. And, you know, there's often a collegiality between trainers, of course, not always, but often, but it's kind of the nature of the beast as trainers chop and change who they work with. And, you know, and, and they, you know, they know each other in, in ways that fighters only know each other. But I did also really like that interaction between Arcel and Cassell because I thought it was one of like mutual trust and respect. It's a difficult line to walk, isn't it? In that, but it seems that nowadays, and I'm talking specifically about boxing here, it seems that that relationship between reporter and boxing figure is either borderline obsequiousness or past borderline obsequiousness <laughs> right. on the part of the reporter, um, or you know, very a very determined distance. And it is possible to thread that needle, I think, where you know it's possible to be collegial and congenial and professional all at once, mm -hmm. and. And I think I feel like as much as any scene so far, perhaps because of the direct relevance, you know, to us and, mm -hmm. and our job, uh, that one really had me yearning a bit. I, I, I don't want to be one of those ah, things were better back in my day kind of thing. But that really had me yearning a little bit for days gone by, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, it's a great observation. Um, talking of other memories of days gone by, which do not have me yearning for the good old days, uh, the scenes of Hagler's victory over Minter and, and the subsequent hooliganism actually brought back some uncomfortable memories for me. I, I mean, obviously, I grew up in England, um, and that country in the late 1970s and early 1980s was at times a pretty horrendous place to be, and, and being a spectator at a sporting event could be taking your life in your hands. Uh, I mean, everybody knows all about British hooliganism at that time, like at soccer games and the like. And and the racism in society that was somewhat inextricable from that, it wasn't even really remotely hidden, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I do remember watching the fight on TV, and I do remember being shocked at the aftermath, but I was 12 years old at the time, and I was too young to connect it with the racism that was a clear factor. I just thought that, you know, the fans were pissed because they thought the Hagler had headbutted Minter to, to cause the cut. I hadn't realized until quite a bit later that there was that undercurrent going into the fight and that Minter and his fan base had a particular reputation for that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so that was kind of uncomfortable reminder to watch. But what I hadn't seen before was Harry Carpenter the British commentator interviewing Hagler in the back afterward. And I couldn't help but, it just made me miss Marvin even more. We've talked about this, but the seeing Hagler wearing this little paper crown, because that was all he was able to get his hold of, you know, and I, I, I pun not intended, marveled at how sanguine and calm and good natured he was about the whole thing. When Harry's like, well, I'm sorry about that. And he goes, well, it just goes to show how famous I am. Um, I, I could not believe how incredibly calm and cool he was about that. And like, to get back to the earlier point, every minute he's in the series just makes me miss it more, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And the, the scene in the ring after the win over Minter, certainly appalling. And uh, as you said, when we were talking about the political angle, times haven't changed as much as we might have hoped. Um, you know, race related topics were 
hard to avoid with, with Hagler uh, as a black guy mm-hmm. living in the Boston area, Boston having not the best history in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it interesting. Uh, Steve Morantz talked in the documentary about the trust between Marvin and the Petronellis. And one of the Petronellis even said he's suspicious by nature, especially with white people. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Tony Page mentioned last week how Marvin being black was one of the three strikes against him that people always talk right. about. Really interesting stuff that the role his race played in his career and his relationships. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last topic, uh, continuing on from that, because it also concerns Hagler. I found an interesting observation that Larry Merchant said Hagler was the Ringo of the four kings <laughs> in the early 80s, meaning he was sort of the forgotten, overlooked one, the clear number four in terms of star power at the time. Uh, and then the line was followed by a classic Larry laugh at his own joke chuckle. Uh, that, that's <laughs> always been a fun Larry tra- trait. Um, yeah. Anyway, that, that's it. Just uh, something about Hagler as Ringo really did it for me uh, and, and for Larry, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. Of course, you know, I love Ringo, but his biggest contribution was arguably Octopus's Garden, which is a fine song. Yeah. It's no Hagler Hearns. Uh, it's no Hagler Hearns. No, it's definitely no Hagler Hearns. And in fact, to uh, don't want to derail this too much and turn it into a Beatles conversation. But when Octopus's Garden comes on the shuffle, I tend to skip that one. <laughs> Of course, I did get myself thinking about this. Well, if that's the case, you got to assume that Ray Leonard is Paul, but then who's John? And I just wound up far more <laughs> down the rabbit hole than Larry had any intention of any of us doing. So um, so instead of beating that comparison to death, uh, let's bring in this week's guest, shall yeah, we? Yeah, let's do that. All right. Uh, joining us now is one of the most celebrated names in boxing, uh, probably best known as the manager of James Tony, and as the inspiration for the Meg Ryan character in the movie Against the Ropes. But she began her career in boxing working as a publicist for Tommy Hearns and the Crunk Gym, and she features prominently throughout the Kings. It is, of course, the one and only Jackie Callan. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. It's my pleasure. I'm so glad that you asked me. Yeah, we're, we're excited to talk to you uh, about this. And uh, I know you haven't seen uh, the whole documentary yet, uh, but there there is a scene in it with your voiceover mentioning that your first time in the Kronk Gym was when you went there as a journalist to conduct an interview. Uh, and you talked about the reaction when a white woman walked into this down and dirty boxing gym. What kind of journalism were you doing at the time? What was the occasion for that interview? And how long did it take for you to segue into becoming a publicist for Kronk and for Tommy? Well, that's a good three-part question. Yes. <laughs> give you the answer. Um, I was foremost an entertainment writer. I wrote for a daily paper and I covered the Oscars, the Emmys, the Grammys, the Tonys. You know, I traveled a lot to all the press junkets for the new films coming out. And I interviewed everyone from Sinatra to Elvis to, you know, the old movie stars like Charlton Heston. And you know, way back, I did presidents. I did sports celebrities, um, Michael Jordan, uh, Magic Johnson, uh, people like Michael Jackson. So I really did the gamut of the entertainment field. And then in the mid seventies, we were short a sports writer on an assignment. So they asked me if I'd like to cover sports, Uh which because I was a sports fan and a little bit of a tomboy, I said, yeah, I'll be happy to do it. So that led me into a career as a sports writer. And I got sent on an assignment to interview this young 
four round fighter out of Detroit, Thomas Hearns. Wow. And I had never been to a live boxing match, much less in a boxing gym. So it was a real eye opener. And as you pointed out, I was very much a fish out of water. because <laughs> It was a very hot, sweaty basement gym. Cockroaches are around. Um, it was just not my element, so to speak. And I never dressed down to go to the gym. So here I am with hair, makeup, high heels, walking in this gym of a lot of hot, sweaty guys. <laughs> and so obviously they noticed me and I noticed them. So it, it took them a while to figure out what was I doing there and to take it seriously. And then as Emmanuel Stewart got to know me a little bit better, I started interviewing other fighters besides just Tabby Hearns. And he offered me a job as the publicist for the whole Croc boxing team. And that led to a 10-year job with him. And it was my education in the sport of boxing. And I couldn't have had a better professor than Emmanuel Stewart. Um, he was wonderful. Yeah, the, the documentary mentions that sort of around that time, uh, Detroit Mayor Coleman Young was involved in establishing a number of rec centers around the city. But, you know, it's Cronk is the one that, whose reputation survived that, that really spread outside of Detroit. And, and I'm curious, what made it so successful in your view? And did it require that synergy of both Manny and Tommy at that time? Would it have been successful if it was just Manny running the gym and Tommy had never walked in there? Or if Tommy had been there and there was no Manny Stewart? That's a very, very good question. I never thought about that, but mm. I think it was the chemistry between the two of them, you know, the father-son relationship that they had, the mentor-mentee, and the fact that here was this, this young, skinny kid from the inner city, and he just became a sensation almost overnight. He started knocking people out. I think he had 18 first-round knockouts in a row, and the city just got behind him right away, and he was like, a hero. And I think the city needed that. You know, it was the late 70s. He turned pro in 77. I came on board in 78. And the cronk name was just, it was a funny sounding word. What's a cronk? You know, people <laughs> always used to ask me, what's a cronk? And because it was the name of the rec center, the cronk, Samuel Cronk Recreation Center. And because of the colors, you know, they had the red and gold colors. And, you know, who put red and yellow together? I mean, they weren't really the colors you were used to seeing. So it kind of stood out. And those jackets that they had that we all wore were those like, you know, college collegiate letter jackets they looked like with the leather sleeves. And, uh, and they became pretty infamous because Michael Jackson wore the jacket in his thriller um, video. Yeah, right. So everybody wanted that jacket. Hmm. So it just became the recognized name in boxing synonymous with the city of Detroit, the mean streets, murder capital. And then of course, Tommy Hearns did a cover photo for Ring Magazine with a fedora and a machine gun. Yep. Motor City hit man, you know. <laughs> so it, it kind of, it all folded in together and then the myth started there and it continued. Right, and, and you mentioned the, the, the mean streets and, and all that. I wonder if you can give us a sense of how tough things were in Detroit at that time. And I know the city continues to have its struggles, but you get the sense that the, the bad situation around 1980 was made all that much worse because the city's fall had been so precipitous. How bad was it? And, and then how important were Kronk and Tommy to lifting the city's spirits? 
Well, I think that they were very important because the city was looking for something at that time to hang on to. You know, um, the Tigers didn't win the World Series till 84. And before that, they hadn't won it since 68. So it was kind of a dry spell. And we didn't have the bad boys of the Pistons at that particular time yet either. Right. You know about the Lions. They never win. So that's <laughs> you know, never anything to think about. And the Red Wings, I don't think that was one of their Stanley Cup eras at that time. So our teams weren't necessarily giving us something to hang on to and cheer for. And here's this skinny kid that's winning all these fights. And then up behind him came Hilmer Kenty, Mickey Goodwin, um, Dwayne Johnson, Milt McCrory, Dwayne Thomas, uh, you know, and the list goes on of all the fighters that I worked with at Krog. So here's this like machine cranking out champions in Detroit. And uh, it gave the city a lot to be thankful for. That in Motown, you know, we're mm. we're real proud of our music and we're real proud of our boxing. Yeah, it occurs to me that as you're talking there, you know, a lot of cities will rally around a fighter when they emerge. But it's almost like uh, Detroit sort of had this franchise of, of the, almost a boxing team in Kronk that, that made it distinct from pretty much any other sports town with its boxing stars. And then I was fortunate enough to kind of branch out in 88 and start managing James Tony and Bobby Hitz. And then Bronco McCart became world champion right. behind James. And so my Galaxy Gym sort of spun off of the Kronk Gym. And it was great because we worked together. We sparred against each other. James Tony used to spar guys like Gerald McClellan. And we'd go back and forth between the gyms. And, and it was a great time. It really was. And then the 80s became very prosperous again. In the 80s and 90s, things picked up and it just became a, a much happier time in Detroit. So we did have a really good era there in the 80s and 90s. You mentioned, you haven't seen it yet, but in episode two of the documentary, there's a soundbite from you where you talk about the fact that you bet a lot of money on Tommy to beat Ray Leonard in the first fight. And you emphasize that it was a lot of money um, i'm guessing you may not be too comfortable in revealing how much it was but feel free to give us the exclusive if you'd like um but well, what made you so confident going into that fight you know i believed in him so much um and we're still best friends he's one of the, the nicest most genuine people i'll ever know and i just i just felt that he had what it took to beat him and at the time had it been a 12 round fight like they are today I suppose it would have had a different ending, but being that it was 15 rounds, we saw what happened in the 13th round mm -hmm. and so on. But um, I just had great confidence in him. So I decided to wager what to me was a lot. And I mean, if I were to put it into today's money, because that was like 40 years ago, mm, right? Oh, I would say it would be in excess of 50, 60,000, maybe. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big bet. <laughs> that is. It was. <laughs> and through 12 rounds, you must have been thinking you were good for it, too. Oh, at the end of the 12th round, I was ready to leave and go right to the sports book. Yeah. I had my little ticket in my hand, and I was like, this is great. But, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. And Tommy gave it his best. And to be honest with you, at the end, the money didn't bother me as much as seeing him lose and what it did to him emotionally. That really hurt. Um, you can always make more money. 
Yeah. And of course, he came back to to win many more fights after that. But it was a good lesson for me on not to bet on fights. <laughs> there you go. OK, <laughs> um, so I, I have to ask you about the, the stoppage. Um, wh- what did you think of the referee's decision in the moment? And, and what do you think some 40 years later? Correct stoppage or a little premature? I think you can look at it either way. You know, you can look at I always err on the side of protecting the fighter health wise. So I would rather stop it a little too soon. So the guy is able to fight another day and he's healthy. I see too much evidence of brain damage from prolonged fighting careers where they, and it isn't just in the ring. It's all that sparring in the gym, the cumulative concussions and, and, and hits in the head that, that kind of, you know, go on and on and on year after year after year. And a lot of times you see these boxers who are slower as they get older than they would have been at that age if they hadn't taken that many punches. So I don't blame a referee for protecting a fighter, but from the other side of the coin, you kind of wish they'd let him go that little extra Mm. bit to see if they could recover enough to get back in the fight. But, you know, hindsight being what it is, um, it went in the record books the way it did. and, And that's that. Right. Does it help you at all when you're looking at that result, knowing that Tommy went on to have such a great career anyway? Like, do you think maybe you might be a bit more questioning of it if that had derailed him in some way? Great point. I do think that, you know, I'm glad that that he never got seriously hurt and that he was able to go on and have a long career. And if you talk to him today, he'd probably tell you he wants a fight tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Mike Tyson's doing it, you know, and he sees Roy Jones is doing it. And uh, I think that love for the sport never dies. And I think a true fighter wants to fight until they're too old to climb in the, the ropes. You know, they love that feeling that that ring walk from the locker room to the ring and the fans cheering and the music playing. I don't think you ever get over that. And you you always in your mind relive that. So, you know, he had a wonderful career, seven time world champion. And I'm just so proud to have been a part of his career and to be such a close friend to him now, because he's just, like I said, he's a prince of a guy. Hmm. Looking back on that whole era, particularly the whole Four Kings era and and that rivalry between those four greats, if somebody were to come to you now, maybe hadn't heard any, didn't know anything about it, but they'd heard that this documentary series was on and you were involved in it. And they asked you to say, Jackie, what was it about these four fighters? What was it about this era that made it so great? What, What would you say to them? Well, I think number one, in that era, the best fought the best because there was this saying that always went around boxing circles that to be the best, you have to beat the best. So the fighters in that era wanted to fight the best fighter they could fight. Today's fighters are a little more cautious. They want to pad their records and, you know, be a little bit more careful who they fight. But then it was bring me the best you got and I'm going to beat the best. So I thought that was a great attitude, a great spirit. And each of these four fighters were so unique in their own way. You had Sugar Ray Leonard, who was America's sweetheart. That smile could light up a room. Duran, he was such a character with his lion and his crazy following down in Panama. And and he was just, he had gone from a smaller weight and up and up and up until he came up to, to meet the Sugar Ray Leonard's and the Thomas Gerns and the Marvin Hagler's, and, you know, and Marvin being the kind of surly, unappreciated, you know, unspoken champion that never got a break. You know, he was kind of the, 
the guy that, you know, had an attitude, that chip on his shoulder. And here's Tommy, you know, holding up the city of Detroit on his shoulders. Mm. And, you know, each one of them had their own flair, their own personality. And watching each of them match up against each other. It wasn't just a trilogy, like the same two fighters fighting three times. It was a round robin. And you don't often see that. And Mm. and that's what made them the kings. No one was afraid to fight anyone. And everyone gave their best. Each fighter brought out the best in the Mm. other fighter. It was magic. Yeah. And, and, and you've commented a few times already in this interview on, on Tommy's personality and, and what a good guy he was and, and, and is. And th- that's the, the last thing that I kind of want to ask you about, Jackie, is to, to just talk about him as a person, both then and now. Um, the documentary really shows us his soft side. Uh, he, he, was he one of those guys who the, the in-ring persona of this, you know, vicious puncher who could knock anybody out and the out of the ring persona that, that they just didn't match up. And he could just, was he one of those guys who could turn that on and off when he got in the ring, he could get the, the eye, the proverbial eye of the tiger that that was Tommy. You just summed up why I'm in boxing. I can't <laughs> that. That was so brilliant because that was what attracted me to the sport. I saw this young kid, 20 years old, tall, skinny, little legs, And he was like, he had the look in his eyes at the beginning of a fight, like, I'm going to kill you. And I was, I mean, I'm sitting on the outside of the ring and I'm afraid and I'm not anywhere near him. He was so vicious. And that right hook, it was just so solid. And I was just afraid of him. And then when he got out of the ring and we went in the back to do the interview, he was this quiet me looking down in his lap. I couldn't believe it was the same person. But how do you turn that on and off? How do you look like you're seven feet tall with a sledgehammer in your hand? <laughs> and then when I'm talking to you, I can barely hear you, you know, speak up, kid. It right. was like, it was unbelievable. And the sweetest thing about him is that from day one, his fans are like gold to him. I mean, if you come up to Tommy Hearns, whether he's eating, whether he's getting a haircut, whatever, he will stop. He will take a picture with you. He'll sign anything you give him, your shoe, your your hat, anything. He loves his fans and he's so accessible and he's so kind. I'll give you an example. Um, we had lunch not too long ago at a restaurant and a young lady came in with her caregiver. She was either autistic or um, she had some other learning disability. And he was watching the interaction between her and her caregiver. And as we left, he walked by the table and the caregiver looked up and said, Tommy Hearns. And he said, yes, ma'am, you know, nice to meet you. He shook her hand and he hugged the little girl. And as we left, he grabbed their check. Oh, wow. Wow, Really? (laughs) Oh, man, that 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 really says it says a lot about him. And and, and it's it's great to hear that you two are still close. Um, Very close. Yeah. What, one sort of tough question um, that I'm curious for your response to, you know, the unfortunate truth is that his speech isn't great. And that, that's been the case for a while, but as best I can tell from interviews and from that story, you just told his mind is still sharp. He has it all together. Am, am I correct about that? And just You're in general. Correct. And I, and I thank you for saying that because when your speech is not quite as sharp as ours is, people mm. assume your mind is not as sharp. Right, right. And in his case, that is totally the opposite. He's as quick-witted as anyone could be. 
He's clever as all of us. And he just isn't able to articulate it as well as he used to be able to. But don't let that confuse you. Right. <laughs> as as and, and I guess if he's picking up uh, random people's checks, that, he, that, that tells us that he's doing okay uh, financially as well. He seems to be fine. Good. He's healthy. He's happy. He has children he loves, grandchildren he loves, and, you know, many, many friends. And uh, he's our hero. We love him in Detroit. And uh, every time anyone sees him, it's always, hey, champ. How you doing, <laughs> champ? Great. Jackie, it has been uh, a genuine honor and pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you so well, much for joining us. Thank you so much for your time. These are the best questions I've heard in a long time, so <laughs> oh. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we, we very much look forward to hearing, as I'm sure you probably yourself look forward to hearing what else you have to say on the documenting episode. So far, it's been no, great. No, I didn't want to see it all at once. I wanted okay. to see it the way the public sees it one at a time. Okay, great. That's fantastic. And I hope you enjoy it as much as, uh, as, much as we have. Oh, I will. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Jackie. That will do it for this edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back on Monday with a full-length podcast previewing Teofimo Lopez versus George Cambosis on Triller and the Showtime Championship Boxing triple header headlined by Jamal Charlo versus Juan Macias Montiel. And we will return next week with a look back at episode three of The Kings when our guest will be producer David Dinkins Jr. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.